Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Alexander Lee. He's a Renaissance historian at the University of Warwick and an author, and we are talking about the story behind Machiavelli's philosophy. Niccolo Machiavelli is one of the most famous political philosophers of all time. His work is often considered ruthless, brutal, and manipulative, but who was the man behind the words? Alexander has just written one of the most insightful and comprehensive biographies of Machiavelli ever. So let's return to 15th century Florence and find out what Niccolo was really like, how he continually failed in his own political career, why he threw up on an old woman after having sex with her, the truth underpinning his views on human nature, and much more. I've mentioned previously that learning about the times and the context and the setting and the history of the environment in which philosophies were created gives you a complete new perspective on what that person was trying to get across. And we learn today, Machiavelli's just this flawed human. You know, he gets drunk with his friends, he turns up late to meetings, he cheats on his wife. And it reminds us that these titans of history, they were flawed humans just the same as we are. It reminds us that we can do great things in life. The fact that we go through the vicissitudes of human days isn't a denier of our capacity to do fantastic things with our time on Earth. Plus, Alex has the perfect historian's narrator voice. So yeah, sit back and just enjoy him telling you what 15th century Florence was like. But now it is time for the wise and wonderful Alexander Lee. Why is an Italian man from the 15th century worth writing about? Um, I think there are uh, at least two good reasons uh, for that. Um, on the one hand, Machiavelli uh, has uh, exerted uh, an influence over the development of Western political thought, um, like very few others. Um, there are not many discussions about uh, realpolitik, uh, the nature of rulership, uh, the role of virtue or the lack thereof in public life, which do not at some point come back to Machiavelli in his writings. The second reason is closely connected with that. When we think of Machiavelli, um, it's quite natural for us to think of the adjective Machiavellian. Uh, That's to say, someone who is shrewd, cunning, a little bit amoral, willing to do things that they probably shouldn't do in other areas of life. Uh, and that uh, association, uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss in, in further detail later on in the show, um, has often coloured the way we perceive the man. His life, however, uh, is quite different or gives us a quite different idea of, uh, or gives us quite different impression. Um, although he often did things which were um, questionable. He was far from being this infallible political genius uh, that we may think of. Uh, in actual fact, uh, he was uh, a very human person, a flawed personality, who was often getting things wrong, who was often finding himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing with the wrong people and getting found out. Um, so I think, yeah, uh, on the one hand, we should look at Machiavelli from the point of view of his uh, enduring relevance, I'm not very keen on the, the idea of relevance as a, as a criterion of historical study, for his relevance to, to political discourse, and on the other hand, because of the extent to which his life does, uh, sort of jars with that a little bit. It seems like some of the established thought was that he was kind of born with this immutable characteristics, these uh, amazing political thinker, and yet upon reading about his life, it seems like he kind of blunders and blunders and slowly gets less worse and less worse and less worse and then eventually ends up at some degree of capability um i i it, um, less worse it, 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 he is always making blunders uh, from the beginning of his political career to the last moment he is always getting things wrong it doesn't that's not to say he doesn't get a lot of things right but he is always making miscalculations he's better i think on paper than he is in his own political career. Um, but it is certainly true that because of Machiavelli's enduring uh, resonance uh, within the field of political thought, or the history of political thought, um, many people even today 
um, have been inclined to believe that he was born, um, you know, uh, like Athena from the head of uh, the of the philosophy gods, um, with this great insight. And it is, I mean. I'm not saying it's it's completely wrong because one can detect the genesis of his ideas um, in his thinking from a comparatively early date. But it is, I think, mistaken to believe that he was a man without flaws, without personal failings, uh, without um, problems and difficulties. But for me, as I hope I've shown in the book, that makes him all the more relatable, all the more engaging and personable. I often say that you know, I, uh, there are very few political thinkers in the world that I'd like to go for a, a pint with, but Machiavelli is certainly one of them. Is that why he's still notorious today then? Why, why is it? There's lots of Renaissance figures that could have been still used in common parlance. I mean, Machiavellianism, his surname has become an <laughs> entire topic within its own right. Why is he so notorious? Sure. Well, um, Machiavelli's. Uh, significance um, as a political thinker and his unfortunate reputation stems from the fact that he broke quite significantly in many respects um, with early traditions of political thought, particularly with earlier ideas of rulership. Um, prior to Machiavelli's birth, it was uh, quite common to believe that uh, princes who wished to rule properly and to remain in power should do so by acting virtuously. And virtue was understood in um, a mixture of kind of stoic and Christian terms. That is to say, it was believed that a ruler should evince those virtues which we should all uh, manifest in our lives. We should, we should be honest, they should be decent, they should be prudent, they should be wise, continent, etc., etc. They should uh, um, act always with justice. Um, Machiavelli, uh, for very pragmatic reasons, thinks that while this might be a very good approach to adopt as a private citizen, he thinks that experience has showed that in practice it's not such a good idea. In fact, in times of turbulence, such as those which, in which he was living, um, it can actually be a disadvantage to act honestly or with generosity or with uh, mercy or compassion, etc. So in The Prince, um, his most famous work, I should say notorious work, he suggests that it is a, a prince who wishes to stay in power should, as well as having um, an independent military force of his own citizens, he should um, be uh, parsimonious rather than generous. He should be um, cruel rather than compassionate. Um, Macaulay does say that if he can make himself loved with the people, that's a lovely thing. But love is a less reliable sentiment uh, as a basis for political power than uh, fear. Um, better okay to be ready to be dishonest than honest, um, etc, etc. Um, so Machiavelli is breaking uh, with this early tradition in saying that uh, a prince needs to act in a way that is um, not always in conformity with, with traditional ideas of virtue or of, 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 of uh, ethical goodness. He wasn't, I should stress, the absolute first uh, to make these points um, when at the very early on in his career, um, in 1499, Florence sacks and arrests one of its leading military commanders, a guy called Paolo Vitelli. And Paolo Vitelli is responsible for um, leading a campaign to recapture Pisa, which has rebelled against Florence a little bit before. For whatever reason, Vitelli throws away a golden opportunity to capture Pisa. And the Florentines attribute this either to incompetence or to treachery. And so they arrest him and they bring him for trial to Florence. And there's a big debate about whether he should just be executed straight off, even though there are doubts about his guilt, or whether you, know, you should give him the benefit of the doubt. And there are very good or powerful arguments made in the councils that while an individual, private individual, should act with compassion and understanding and justice, things are different for a state. A state should act uh, in such a way that um, it preserves its own interests. And so they decide to execute Vitelli, encourager les autres. 
And we can see in this idea, this idea of reason of state later becomes known, that um, the state should follow a different set of moral precepts to private individuals, an early um, foretaste of ideas that Machiavelli is going to develop more fully. And in The Prince, he really works out all the implications of this. Unfortunately, um, well, I should say he's, he's writing against, as I said earlier, a very, very, very specific set of, of political circumstances. Um, when he's writing, um, he's lost his job. Uh, Florence has changed hands from being a republic. It's now gone back into the hands of the Medici. Uh, it's beset by factional um, divides. And the whole of Italy is in uh, the, the grip of, of, of a very complex series of wars. It's evident that Machiavelli needs a job and that to get a job, he needs to persuade the Medici that he's a good advisor. And to do that, he needs to show them how to stay in power within these circumstances. And that's why he suggests uh, being, uh, you know, uh, cruel, dishonest, etc., etc., when necessary, I should stress. Um, but the work is written in a deliberately discreet and subtle way. Machiavelli knew very well that he couldn't simply say to the Medici, um, hi, I'd like a job. Here's what I think about your situation. So he dresses it up in a very abstract way, as if he's writing a very disinterested piece of political philosophy. And that has made it very easy for people from soon after it was written to read it um, in uh, out of its context, if I can put it that way, to see it as a repository of universal ideas rather than an attempt to address very precise concerns. And the problem, I mean, that's a legitimate way of reading anything. I'm not going to cast aspersions on my colleagues in political science, no matter what I might feel. Um, but as soon as you take that step of reading it out of its context, um, then there's a tendency or a temptation, I should say, to project your ahistorical reading of the prince back onto Machiavelli. And that does lead us to um, misrepresent uh, his ideas, his background, um, his intentions. What was his personality like? It seems like someone oh. who would have, who would write this sort of stuff, would be very game playing, you know, high on the dark triad score, narcissistic, <laughs> no empathy. What sort of a man can write this sort of a work? Um, well, the short answer is a clever one. Um, but a pleasant one. If I were to describe Machiavelli in a word, I would say that he was a bit of a lad. Um, <laughs> that's so good. That, that, that three-letter <laughs> three word that every university student rugby player desires to be called, that, that's Niccolo Machiavelli. Well, I, I, I say it a little bit in jest, of course, but it, it is meant seriously. Because, I mean, let, let's go back to the circumstances in which it was written. It, the Prince was written, because it's a good insight in the type, into the type of guy he was. A little bit before, he, uh, is, he loses his job. He loses his job as um, a senior bureaucrat within the Florentine government because he has aligned himself with um, a, series of Republican, uh, a, system, a Republican system of government um, and um, afterwards foolishly uh, allowed himself to get caught up in or implicated in a conspiracy against Florence's new rulers, the Medici. So he gets arrested after that and thrown into prison and tortured. Um, that shows straight off that he's in the wrong place at the, right time, uh, at the wrong time. Other bureaucrats who worked in the same office as him, such as his boss, Marco uh, Virgilio Adriani, did not lose their jobs, let alone get thrown into jail. So he's doing the wrong thing. While he's in jail, he writes a series of poems, two poems, to his old friend Giuliano de' Medici, who he knew as a kid. And these are very, very, very funny verses. For somebody who's been tortured, lying in a stinking prison cell, they're very amusing. Um, they poke fun at himself. He pokes fun at himself. He contrasts himself. He adopts the form of heroic poetry at certain moments to mock himself because he's not being heroic. He's been cowardly. Anyway, eventually he gets let out. And because he doesn't have much cash and he's very miserable, he goes to stay on his farm in the countryside. In the countryside, uh, he writes a, a letter to, um, to a friend of his a little bit later, uh, in which he describes a typical day. What does he do in the countryside? Well, he gets up, 
in the morning he goes and catches birds in the in the, in the countryside uh, uh, by the side of a river and in the fields he reads some poetry all very nice then comes lunch he goes home has a bite to eat and in the afternoon he goes to the pub uh, in the local village uh, there he gambles and drinks with all the good for nothings his words uh, and they you know they get drunk and they have fights or whatever he's, he's not quiet about this he's quite open what he doesn't mention in that letter is that a little bit later he also he has let several children at this point he's married he also has an affair with uh, with a, a localish girl one of many affairs he had and then later in the evening when everything's kind of settled down he goes into his study and he puts on the the clothes of, of the court and he starts to read and write so in that moment we can see all the rich very human contradictions and failings of of, of this man um he is very very clever um but he also you know he likes a drink he has affairs he's he's a bit of a lad uh, what can i say <laughs> he has affairs with both men and women right he's got tons of kids he's got a wife that loves him and it seems like he loves too but he's also uh spraying it around for once for want of a better word yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, he certainly has a lot of affairs with uh, with other women. Um, he uh, some of them are very, very intense affairs. Um, so towards the end of his life, he has a, a long, long affair with a woman twenty odd years, I think twenty odd years his junior, called Barbara Salutati, and he writes again a lot of poems to her that are that are very self mocking, very acutely aware of his own failings indeed in one poem he even seems to allude to the fact that he may have been suffering some erectile dysfunction at the time um we think he also had some uh, relations with guys too there's a little bit of uncertainty here um but i think there's probably enough evidence that it that, that we can that, that we can be pretty sure about it um but it's unusual at the time, well, officially, homosexuality and all homosexual relations are uh, illegal, um, although there is a certain ambiguity in the legislation. But nonetheless, it, it is quite common um, under the radar, effectively. So he's certainly not not strange, not uh, not out of the ordinary in that regard. What are some of the other big catastrophes that he goes through? I want to get onto his philosophy and his successes in a bit, but it seems like he has a, a nice litany of things that go wrong he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and he seems to have a knack for being able to do that sure um well one of the important parts of machiavelli's uh, job uh, as a bureaucrat as the second chancellor of the florentine republic um was uh, going on embassies he, he was usually i mean i think on one occasion towards the end of his life he was actually an ambassador but on all the other occasions he was simply an emissary so in other words, he couldn't agree things on his own, uh, on the strength of his own name. He, he had to keep working on the instructions of people back home. Um, and to start with, he's pretty bad at this, actually. We can't blame him too much because, you know, he's um, his early missions. Uh, he's still in his late 20s, um, late 20s, very early 30s. Um, so we, and he's never done that kind of thing before. But still, he is pretty naive. One of his first missions is to a woman called Caterina Sforza, known as the Tigress of Forli, and she is a formidable woman. Um, she's been holding, uh, protecting, defending the, the independence of her little tiny state uh, in the midst of near constant threats from all sides. Um, anyway, Machiavelli goes along. She has to, he has to secure a deal whereby uh, she'll let her son, who's a mercenary, fight for Florence on similar terms, and he has to try to avoid giving away too much on Francis' behalf. And Catherine, who's a wily old woman, not that she's not old, a wily woman, um, very well educated, keeps sort of dropping hints. She, she has to drop hints because um, there are other people present at these meetings who can't be allowed to hear everything. So she keeps dropping hints. And Machiavelli just doesn't notice, just doesn't pick up on them. So she keeps having to send her secretaries to, you know, have a word with him and say, you know, what we're really trying to say is this. Pay attention. Anyway, he gets a bit better in time, but he he's in later missions. He still kind of misjudges the tone. So uh, later he goes on a mission to several missions to the King of France. And uh, the basic point of these missions is to get the King of France, who is 
often um, mounting expeditions to Italy uh, in pursuit of his claims to the Kingdom of Naples and to the Duchy of Milan to defend Florence against its enemies. Anyway, on one of these missions, he has to um, gain the favour of um, the king's uh, chief minister, uh, Georges d'Amboise. And he catches Georges at one point outside and he says, you know, um, let me explain uh, Italian politics to you. What, what the king really has to understand is this. You know, this is a, a guy in his mid-30s who has, you know, he's, he's not a fool, but he's lecturing one of Europe's foremost political figures. And Georges d'Amboise listens and he says, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I don't need any lessons from you, chum jumps on his horse and rides off. Anyway, and it goes on like this. Uh, perhaps the most famous mission is where he meets Cesare Borgia for the first time. Uh, this is in uh, mid, um, I think it's mid-1502. Uh, Cesare Borgia, the son of Alexander VI, uh, the Pope at the time, is trying to carve out a state for himself in central Italy. He's just captured a city called Urbina, beautiful, beautiful city on a high, uh, high hit, a, 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 a kind of plateau of a, towers above the, the, the surrounding countryside. Um, Machiavelli and his uh, companion, um, uh, uh, who is um, a bishop, arrive late at night. They don't arrive when they're supposed to. They have to creep in through a back gate in the middle of, the, of a rainstorm and they're caught by guards and they're dragged before Cesare, you know, soaking wet, covered in mud in the middle of the night, having not even managed to get into the city correctly. And Machiavelli is just in awe in awe of Cesare at that moment. And um, that does colour, he, he gets over it quite quickly, but, but that does kind of colour his relations with Cesare. More broadly speaking, his political errors um, are um, more fundamental, and I've already alluded to some of them. So for much of his political career, as a officially uh, objective, in, apolitical uh, bureaucrat, um, he uh, just kind of does his job, but in time he aligns himself more and more and more with um, the defence of a republican system of governance. And uh, he becomes quite vehement uh, in uh, 1509, 1510, 1511. And there's good reason for that, it's because the republic is under threat from foreign attack. But it's also exactly the time to be doing that, the wrong time to be aligning himself with the Republic, because everything falls apart and the Medici come back and the Republic falls. And as I've said, he gets sacked and, and, um, and arrested, trying to get a job with the Medici because he's not a rich man, he needs to work. Um, unfortunately, uh, he doesn't do very well. The Prince is written, as I said earlier, as a job application. Um, but when he comes to present the, the Prince to the person to him dedicated, Lorenzo de Medici, um, he comes at the wrong time. Lorenzo has just received a gift of two hunting dogs from somebody else, and he doesn't even look at the book. So Machiavelli is really angry, and he goes off saying, damn these Medici, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, years later, he eventually earns their trust and is sent on a few relatively minor missions, but is involved in, in uh, their plans to, their, their campaign to defend Florence from their enemies. And just, you know, he's just wormed his way back into their circle when, lo and behold, they're kicked out of Florence as well. So he's again on the wrong side. By then, however, it's too late. And uh, he dies, sadly, um, uh, rather disappointed. So what's the highest office that he gets to? It seems like he's constantly selling lows and buying highs and doing an awful lot of work <laughs> to try and climb back up. Also, sure. if you are listening somewhere beyond the grave, Nicolo, I don't. It sounds like such a turbulent environment that it would have been very difficult to have weathered those storms. That period would have been almost impossible without the the foresight of clairvoyance. Um, it wasn't impossible. There were people who did manage to um, weather the constitutional shifts in Florence without suffering too much hardship. His boss, for example, Marcello Livadilli Adriani, who is just senior to him, uh, stays in office uh, as Florence's top bureaucrat um, through um, uh, through several changes of government, changes of regime at least. But you're right in saying that these were very, very, very turbulent times. It was extremely hard to stay on your feet. Um, it was hard enough for people of um, 
some wealth and political, independent political standing. But it was, it was even harder for somebody like Machiavelli, who um, who came from a fairly modest background. He wasn't poor, but nor was he uh, nor was he rich by any stretch of imagination. Um, who you know began life under a bit of a shadow because of his father's indebtedness and possible illegitimacy, etc. Um, he really had to 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 work to get to get anything really. Um, and that was difficult. Um, there were various routes to achieve security and stability from an intelligent guy at the time. Um, it was not unusual for those who had some education and literary ability to seek the patronage of more powerful rulers or more powerful figures. Um, alternatively, you could seek um, office as a secretary or a chancellor, as Machiavelli did. But in that case, it was difficult to weather the storms and it was difficult to know when to involve yourself in the political fray and when not to. What are the most common misconceptions about his philo philosophical stances? Um, well, the most common one uh, we've already touched upon, um, and that is to say that uh, Machiavelli was a kind of prophet of, if not evil, certainly a morality. Um, this is a, a reading of the prints uh, that has been common from very shortly after it uh, appeared in print. It, it was never published in his lifetime, but it was, it was published very shortly afterwards. Um, he was, uh, you know, attacked from both sides of the confessional divide during the Reformation, attacked by um, Catholics because they saw this as an enemy of the virtuous rulership they were trying to defend in the pre-Tudentine period. It was attacked by Protestants who saw this as an emblem of all the kind of awful things that Catholics were doing. Um, so uh, in France, um, many of your listeners may, may perhaps be familiar with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Uh, in, in, in France, where um, on one particular night on the Feast of St. Bartholomew, um, the uh, Protestants of, of Paris were, were butchered. And those who survived um, often described the, 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 um, the, king, the king of France's actions as very Machiavelli. So uh, that gives you a, a sense of the way in which, the extent to which, within a few decades of his death, he's already become a kind of shorthand for wickedness and evil. So was he, he wasn't called immoral during his own lifetime because the work wasn't sufficiently widely passed around for people to work out what he was up to? Well, it, it, it was, um, it did generate a bit of a stir uh, after he, he began circulating it, but nothing compared to what, was ha what happened in later decades. What do, you think, um, what, this... do you, what do you think he would have thought of that? What do you think he would have thought of where his work was taken after his death? Well, this, this is um, an interesting question because it, it, it comes back to the issue of, where, of for whom Machiavelli was writing or who he thought he was writing for. Those who have been inclined to see him as a kind of prophet of amorality have supposed that he was writing for posterity. Um, uh, Leo Strauss and Harvey Mansfield have been particularly um, keen to uh, advocate this line of thought. Now, it wasn't uncommon for people at the time to write for posterity. Um, one of Machiavelli's favourite authors was a guy called Francesco Petrarca, who we know in English as Petrarch. And he was you know, an incredibly important poet, second only to Dante in importance, in fact. And he wrote during his lifetime in the 14th century a letter to posterity. He was constantly re-editing his letters to ensure that they were read in exactly the way he wanted them to be read after his death. He spoke frequently about um, how it was possible to sort of have an existence beyond the grave. Uh, and he was always comparing himself to people who had an enduring legacy. But I don't think Machiavelli was like that. I don't think he was writing for posterity at all occasionally alludes to um, people in the future, but it's always very clear that he's writing for a specific moment against a very specific background, a very specific constellation of circumstances. So I think um, each of his major works was intended to address an immediate uh, objective. The Prince uh, you know, uh, was designed to respond to the challenges facing the Medici after they returned to power in France in 1512. The Discorsi, his other major work, uh, was um, dedicated to some of the friends he made in the Orti Ottivari, a set of gardens where he met young men who 
were either a mixture of people who were on the periphery of the military circle or those who were opposed to military. Uh, and there is a suggestion that it's intended to um, cultivate um, a new set of political sensibilities uh, in their hearts. Um, I think he probably, as a consequence, I think he probably would have been surprised um, at uh, the fact that, that he has had such an enduring uh, appeal, that he had a readership lasting, you know, five centuries after his death. Do I think he would be surprised by that his work was read as, um, or misread as praise of, of amorality or even immorality? I'm not sure about that because he was very conscious of the extent to which he was breaking with tradition in the prints. He was, uh, you know, very, very well aware of it. He, he signalled it himself. So the answer is, I think, uh, I think he he would have been both surprised and unsurprised. Sorry, that was a typical historian's answer. Very yes, diplomatic, sir. yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, back to the misconceptions. Um, in, in what sense? I'm sorry. The most <laughs> common misconceptions of his philosophy. Oh, well, um, the uh, as I said, the most common misconception arises from the premise that he is attempting to suggest that rulers who wish to remain in power should be um absolutely moral in all in all circumstances um that um as i said if you read it out of its context then you can make that argument um but i'm, I'm not convinced it's it's completely true because in fairness if you actually read the prints in detail um he is very very careful to qualify these you know kind of scare quotes that's often pulled out um he says yeah, I mean, it's nice for a prince to be loved. I mean, that's obviously that's what we should should aim for. But if you can't, then the next best thing is to be feared. So, you know, weigh a doubt against the certainty. Um, however, he also says that if you're going to make yourself feared, be, be careful not to push that too far. Because if you make yourself into a monster, then you're going to arouse a whole bunch of, of, of animosity amongst uh, your your subjects and they're going to to at some point um, decide that it's better to take the risk of asking you even though that is extremely uncertain he says it's where than to remain under your yoke um, he doesn't of course again say that it is necessary always to reject the precepts of amorality he merely says uh, reject the precepts of conventional morality he merely says that a prince should know how to act contrary to the dictates of conventional morality when necessary um, and how to be virtuous in a new sense, virtuous in the sense of being a man, being manly in his words. Um, so yeah, the, the common misconceptions, uh, that's the most common misconception. Um, I, I mean, I, I think we can, there are, it's perhaps worth noting that even those who who do present Machiavelli as a as an advocate of amorality or a prophet of evil, if you like, um, have difficulties in reconciling the prince with some of his other works, which offer a, a somewhat different view of political action, like the Discorsi, for example. Um, the Discorsi is uh, nominally a, um, a an explanation of how one should read the first 10 books of Livia's history of Rome. But in actual fact is an analysis of how states of all kinds, not just principalities, um, become great and stay great. Um, and that ends up, the answer to that is that they have to stay free in his words, because you can't be great unless you're free. So the question is, how do you become free uh, and keep your, your liberty? And the answer is once again, virtue. Um, Obviously, virtue not in the traditional sense, but virtue in the sense of being willing to do anything for the defence of the Republic, being uh, a true vir, willing to sacrifice even yourself uh, in defence of the Republic. Willingness to, as Machiavelli says, you know, kill, rape, steal, whatever necessary to protect the Republic. And then he talks about the way in which you can cultivate that virtue, because people tend to be self-interested. The more, In fact, the more prosperous people become, he says, uh, the more likely they are to think only of themselves. So the question is how to cultivate this virtue in the people more generally. Um, and as though he does return to some of the ideas he uh, he uh, made in the, he, he raised in the prince, um, such as that leaders 
charismatic leadership is an important um, means of cultivating virtue in the people, and charismatic leaders uh, should occasionally be quite cruel. He doesn't suggest that it's the be-all and end-all. Um, in, in fact, he addresses, introduces a whole range of other ideas, like the need to eliminate great disparities of wealth, um, the need to use law as a form of education, um, the need to cultivate a vigorous religious belief, etc., uh, etc. Et so um, the, 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 the challenge of people who have read The Prince as a uh, defence of um, a more uh, princely uh, uh, rulership have often struggled to to explain how the prince uh, tessellates with with this courtesy, which is seems ostensibly to be more concerned with republics and other forms of government. Um, and it's challenging. It's challenging for those who see Machiavelli as this prophet of, of evil, because um, if you read it out of context, it can appear that he's advancing two completely contradictory viewpoints. Whereas the reality is, A, he's writing in response to different slightly different circumstances for slightly different audiences, and also in the context, um, the, problem which, the problems which he's addressing are essentially identical um, in the 16th century. Um, there is less of a sense of a, of a radical uh, difference between princely and republican senses, uh, forms of government, much less pronounced than, than we, we think today. Um, so in actual fact, all he's trying to do is answer the question of how does a state of any kind, um, ruled in whatever way, um, maintain some kind of stability in this mad and changing world where fortune can you know, do whatever she likes. It seems interesting to me that he is being held up by many people as a, a philosophical, political philosoph philosophical prophet in one way, and yet in his own deployment of these strategies appears to fail quite consistently. I mean, he, he does okay, but he's, he doesn't seem to have the foresight that he's professing others should take on. He doesn't have foresight, but what he does have is an extraordinary sense of self-honesty. Um, he is not a sort of person who is um, unwilling to recognise where he's gone wrong, or so you know arrogant that he cannot see fault in his closest allies and dearest friends. So in um, the discourse, for example, he takes issue with his former boss, um, the, the head of the of, of the republic, uh, with which which he served so loyally for for thirteen years, uh, thirteen and a bit years, um, a man called Piero Soderini, um, is is castigated quite quite severely in the discourse. Um, for admittedly not for the worst things in the world, but for being too kind and being too nice and being unwilling to um, uh, act ruthlessly towards his his uh, opponents. Um, but nonetheless, this this uh, is evidence of somebody who's willing to question um, his previous experiences. And indeed, he makes this very clear um, both in the in the Prince and in this course. He says, you know, I've been around a bit. I've seen things. And here's what I've learned. Yeah, yeah and indeed, yeah. this is really the, the things he's. This is something that he comes across time and time again in his other works. Uh, at around the same time he's writing these books, he also writes a note to um, uh, somebody who's about to go away uh, on his first diplomatic mission. And Machiavelli says, "You know, these are the, these are the stuff I've learned. Um, take heed." He doesn't say he's always got it right. Indeed, he's aware that he's often learnt from his own errors. Um, but there it is. What are some of the main lessons that we should take away? Um, it's very difficult to to answer that because uh, it kind of invites um, an answer which uh, which <laughs> which commits the kind of a historical scene that I have criticised already. But let's play the game anyway. Um, I think. I think two serious ones and one less serious one. 
central theme running through all of Machiavelli's writings uh, is fortune and the vicissitudes of fortune. Fortune, he says, is uh, what rules the world around us. Uh, but she, it's always, he always imagines her as, as a woman. She is very unpredictable and very capricious. You never know when uh, she's going to rise you up to the highest heights and when she's going to knock you down on your knees. She can't be won over, he says. She's not going to be placated with uh, imprecation. She's not going to be placated with, uh, you know, virtue, anything like that. You, you are not going to be able to affect her, her decisions. So the only thing you can do is be ready to adapt, to be changeable, to be flexible. And when the moment comes, not to be timid, to act decisively when necessary. And that, I think, is um, one, uh, one of the very, f he first voices that in relation to um, a Pope Julius II, who he admires for a time for his decisive action. But it is one of the very few points that you can abstract as a, as a kind of universal principle. And I think is one which we can all apply to a certain extent in our lives, particularly at a moment of instability such as now. The second one, perhaps, is um, a little bit historical, but not too historical. Um, in many of Machiavelli's works, he displays an acute awareness of a um, that the Florentine state and indeed all polities uh, are weakened by great disparities of wealth. Uh, in Florence, uh, since very early times, um, society had been divided between two groups: uh, the uh, the uh, the popolo um, and the the grassi, the, the people and the, the fat cats, if you like. This is a rather simplistic way of, of looking at Florentine society, but it's not invalid. It's pretty pretty okay as a model for looking at it. And he says this is problematic because each of these two groups has totally opposed objectives. The the fat cats, um, the oligarchs, they want to dominate. And the popolo want not to be dominated. Now, obviously, we're not all living in 15th, 16th century Florence. Uh, and the circumstances enjoyed by experience by each of these groups is not duplicated today. But it is true that in today's political environment, we do see great disparities of wealth creating a series of political problems. Um, you know, if governments uh, you want, which are obliged to look at almost any area, either of fiscal policy or social policy, are obliged to, um, particularly at a point such as now, when we are recovering from the terrible economic shock, of how to balance the interests of these two groups. And um, Machiavelli obviously says, you know, if you, if you can, can please both of them, that's hunky-dory. Um, but he also says that um, on balance, uh, it is better to stick with the um, the, 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 the have-nots um, for a variety of reasons that I, that I won't go into at the moment. And that I, you know, you, people might disagree with that, but nonetheless, I do think his analysis of um, his, his, his contention that disparities of wealth constitute a major problem for any polity wishing to establish stability remains true today, as it has always done. The less serious point is this. Machiavelli, as you said, was off getting things wrong. He was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he often got very depressed. He, he was quite frank about that in, in his voluminous correspondence. He often said how, how low he was and how miserable he was. But he always bounces back. He always keeps a smile on his face. He's always joking and laughing. And that, I think, is, is reassuring. Um, I think it's reassuring because when we think of somebody like Machiavelli, you know, it's a name that ranks alongside Aristotle, Plato, Marx, Hegel, etc. in importance. But knowing that he was a very human chap who got down, who had a laugh, etc., I think is somehow, I don't want to say inspirational, but it, it it makes it seem as if these Olympian figures aren't so far beyond our reach. I really like that. I spent 
my last birthday last year in Athens, walking around the Agora and the Stoa Poikile, and then the year before that in the Roman Forum, walking around the Colosseum and, and the Sistine Chapel. So for two birthdays in a row until COVID came in and, and spoiled it all, um, I was adding context to things that I'd learned and read. Sure. And I think I had undervalued how much that contributes to a greater, deeper understanding. It's only really when you can feel what it, and I, I hope to go to Florence. So I, I would have gone this year. That would have probably been my birthday this year had travel not been restricted. And I want to walk around the streets and I want to think and, and feel and, you know, have an audiobook on Kindle with sure. me or whatever. And, um, yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean. I think that by humanizing these figures, it makes their achievements feel closer. It makes them seem more mortal. It reminds mm. us that they're not performative figures, although the performative nature mm. of the the prince is particularly like, funny, I suppose, sure. in terms of a mirroring here. But that they're not just performative figures. They're not these celebrities or like, you, like WWE wrestlers. You know, they kind of feel a little <laughs> bit like that. Larger yeah. than life, they... Sure. They become caricatures of themselves, and we see this with Machiavelli's work. Absolutely. And to hear that he's just a man who has sometimes doesn't get it up for his misses, and he goes and gets in fights. Not, not, not his misses, not his misses. Okay, his mistress. Sorry, yes. No, you got to <laughs> make sure that he performed for the misses. You got to do that if you're going to cheat on her. At least perform when you get your hands on her. Um, yeah, I just thought I, I think that's really that's really right. But that's the thing that that strikes me as why people are tending to misread his work, especially when they don't view it in the wider context because they don't understand just how performative it was, that it was written as this thinly veiled, low-key job application with a very specific set of, uh, of parameters for the person he was trying to write it for. And presumably as well, if you're doing that for essentially one person or one group of people, you're not intending for it to be <laughs> still read half a millennium later and published to the entire world to see. So sure, I, it makes sense why people are misrepresenting that or at least misunderstanding or misinterpreting it. I, I would put a rider on that, actually. Um, I, I agree with everything you say, absolutely. Um, but I, I don't want to suggest that there is any one way of reading the prints at all. The great benefit of placing Machiavelli in his context and humanizing him uh, and recognizing that his prince and all his other works were written against a very set of specific set of circumstances is important, not because I think that necessarily leads you to a true understanding of it, although I have my own opinion of it. And if I didn't think it was right, I wouldn't have written, written the biography. Uh, but I think by humanizing any uh, political philosopher, it becomes easier to engage with their works at a meaningful substantive level, critically, rather than viewing them as works of some Olympian genus far beyond our reach or you know, our, our humble experiences, but as the scribblings of someone who was troubled or having difficulties or whatever, we can, you know, effectively talk to them. I mean, like, Cicero said of his books, you know, you talk to, talk to your books, um, you criticize them, you challenge them, and maybe you produce something else out of it of, of your own. And that, I think, is, is much more valuable and a much more useful um, way of reading uh, political philosophy, whether it be Machiavelli or somebody else's, than simply looking at it as, um, reading it as a passive uh, consumer. What do you disagree with most? Talking about criticism and, and pushback, what do you degree, uh, disagree with most that was in Machiavelli's work or assumptions that he held about the world or philosophy at large? Oh, God, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, what, do, what do I disagree with? Um, one of the reasons I haven't given a great deal of thought to that, I should confess, is because I actually find his lesser works much more exciting. I really like his poems and his plays, and uh, they're very funny. And you really can't really engaging. disagree with a play, can you? You, can, really. just say, you um, can just say it's shit or good. That's, that's really the spectrum. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, yeah. I think there's some literary critics who might disagree with that. <laughs> but, but yes, yes, essentially. Um, but there are little problems. Um, I think, uh, what would I disagree with? Um, I think there are some um, 
there are many aspects of his uh, works which do not necessarily interpret his own times in an accurate way. Um, so, for example, his tremendous faith in a citizen army, um, which is you know, one of the, the, the most important points he makes uh, in the Prince, the Discorsi, and in the um, the Art of War above all. Um, he was very keen on this uh, because partly because he had re helped re-establish a citizen militia in Florence. Can you just time. explain so, what a citizen army is? A, a militia, sorry, of course. Um, at, at the time, it was common for states uh, like Florence to uh, not have a standing army of their own. Instead, they employed mercenaries, often dozens of mercenaries, each with a couple of you know, 20 or so horsemen, uh, knights, soldiers, whatever, under their command and cobbled together an army in this kind of imperfect way. And these were hugely unreliable. Um, they were are, these pay, are these just pay to play guys? Yeah, they were, exactly. Um, you paid these guys to fight on your behalf. They worked for the highest bidder. Um, they were necessary um, predominantly because wars were becoming uh, bigger in scale and more professionalised with uh, more expensive equipment like uh, cannons, uh, crossbows, uh, rudimentary firearms, etc., etc. So you needed professionals. And these guys had uh, professionalism in spades. But because they were working for money, um, you couldn't always guarantee that they weren't going to betray you to for a high bidder, yeah. or just not fight in the end or whatever. Um, so Machiavelli argues uh, vigorously throughout his life for a citizen militia. And what does that mean? That means your own citizens fight for you. Nowadays, this seems like a bloody obvious idea. And indeed, many modern states have made this the absolute cornerstone of their existence. The um, uh, America, for example, you know, the right to bear arms is absolutely fundamental to American existence uh, and the idea of fighting uh, for your, your, your nation uh, in defense of its liberty is you know, axiomatic. Um, but for Machiavelli, it was very new. And he gives the impression that any state that does, that has a citizen army, uh, is going to be stronger than one with a bunch of mercenaries. Except that at the time, that just wasn't true. Um, Florence develops, under his uh, uh, um, oversight, a citizen militia, and it may have had contributed a bit to some successes like the recapture of Pisa but when push comes to shove and it really has to show its mettle it doesn't live up to expectations at all um, when in 1512 um, Florence is attacked by an enormous uh, Spanish papal army and um, the militia is basically the only thing that's there standing between um, uh, Florence and, and, and this crisis uh, and they're locked in a place um, called Prato, not, not, not far away, and they just don't do anything. They don't do anything. Um, he repeatedly, despite this, he repeatedly argues for it in other contexts. Um, uh, he tries to persuade the Pope to set up a, a militia in, in the Romagna. But it's not going to happen. It, it needs an apparatus that's completely different. Why is he wrong? Well, there's a, that's a different argument altogether. I think it was basically because it was too small and uh, he wasn't well enough trained. And then we just talk about training. Um, but uh, that I think he got wrong. And, and that was, in fact, kind of recognised by by um, by many of his, the early readers of The Art of War. Um, he his view of military tactics, his view of mercen his view of mercenaries, etc., is isn't doesn't enjoy a great deal of popularity by readers of the art of war, although it is hugely, hugely popular as a book. Um, instead, readers are more interested in his um his view of uh, you know vertu or whatever. So what I disagree with that as a reading of how to fight a war in the sixteenth century. Nice idea, doesn't work in practice. I like it. What are some of your favourite stories from him? You've got him turning up to as an emissary covered in mud, sneaking in through the back door. Are there any other favourite stories you've got of his? Um, oh, there's lots, many of which aren't suitable for a family audience. <laughs> this isn't a family audience. Don't worry, Alex. This is a, this is a very um, mature audience and it's got the explicit rating on iTunes, so you're good to go. Exactly, to hear that. Um, well, it's an absolutely horrible story, actually, <laughs> of when he's uh, late in his his, uh, his career as second chancellor of France. He is sent to deliver a bunch of cash to the emperor in northern Italy. And while he's on his way back, he uh, experiences 
um, what he calls conjugal famine, which means he hasn't had sex for a while and he's feeling randy. <laughs> conjugal <laughs> famine. <laughs> it's a isn't it? It's really nice. Uh, anyway, and um, he's walking back home and one day and obviously staying with there's an old lady who does his shirts for him, who, who does his laundry for him. And she approaches him and says, uh, hello, sir, uh, can I interest you in, in, in anything? And uh, and she says, I think I have something that, that might appeal to you in the cellar or in, 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 down in my place. And so he follows her and um, he uh, she pulls back a curtain to reveal this um, uh, a, 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 um, a prostitute uh, sitting on a bed. And he, the light's very dim, and he doesn't really think she's she's very attractive, and her breath stinks a bit. Um, it's not very big, but he's so randy that he thinks, what the hell? Anyway, so the inevitable happens, and uh, then when he's done, um, he thinks, I, I think I, I better 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 take a look at this lady. So he pulls the light closer. And the description he gives is just just awful. The poor woman, he feels so sorry for her. He says, "Oh, it's it's, it's just horrible." And anyway, it's, I won't go into the detail, but it's so disgusting that he is sick all over her. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> and then he runs out. Um, it's a horrible story. It's a horrible, horrible story. But that is kind of the guy he was. Um, I think it's um, he. he I've already mentioned how much I like his poems and plays, but but these are the repositories of, of of really lovely stories that may not necessarily have been indebted to his his life, but were certainly in, or reflect his life. But they were certainly indebted to some of his experiences. Um, so, for example, he writes a play called the uh, the Mandragola, um, where I won't give you too much detail because I know time's getting on. But basically, um, a student who just come back from Paris has heard about this really attractive lady. Um, and he wants to see if she's as beautiful as um, uh, as everyone says. And it turns out she's even more gorgeous. The problem is she's married to uh, uh, an old fuddy-duddy of a lawyer who's a bit a bit dim. Anyway, he decides that he's got to seduce her. And so he enlists the support of uh, a good-for-nothing. Um, and they consider all kinds of different plans of how to how, how he can get into bed with her. And he eventually hit upon an idea, which is to say that um, this couple um, have long wanted a child, but have never been able to conceive. And so our hero dresses himself up as a doctor and offers them a solution, which is um, uh, uh, a potion made from a mandrake root. Make that what you like. And he says, drink this. As soon as you drink this, you will conceive. There'll be no problem. But there's a catch. There's a catch. The first person to sleep with you, lady wife, um, after you drink this, will die. So obviously it can't be your husband. So <laughs> his accomplice uh, suggests a, a way around this, this threat, which is to say that they will kidnap somebody who will draw out the poison and save the husband from the, the, the danger. And inevitably it's the same guy, it's the student. And uh, he allows him to be kidnapped, he sleeps with this woman and she's you know, eventually he reveals himself and she's so happy with it that they carry on their affair. And her, the husband thinks this is, you know, thinks that he's been saved and so he's hugely grateful and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, another awful um, sexual story, I suppose. Um, but it's that kind of bawdy humour is very, very emblematic of, um, of, of Machiavelli's way of looking at the world and his life. Um, he, he, it's interesting that in that story, we would expect him to project himself onto the student. But actually, it isn't the case. Um, the husband whom he gulls is called Messenichia. And there are lots of reasons why he's called Nikia. But one of them could be that it sounds very similar to Niccolo. So in actual fact, he's putting himself in the position of somebody who is tricked. Um, and again, that's evidence of his, you know, his willingness to laugh at himself. Um, there you go. The, the, there are lots of other stories as well, which I won't won't go into. But if you haven't read them, they're a little bit difficult to find. But but they're really worth reading. They're all hilarious. The plays and the uh, and the, the, the poems. It seems like he's got his, his unique weapon 
is his metacognizance. It's his ability to think about thinking and to see where he stands within the movement of things. He's obviously able to watch human nature and perceive it, even if he's not able to deploy the skills required to manipulate it himself. He's obviously very perceptive, and even perceptive of himself and his own f failings. Sure. Which, yeah, I mean, when you hear these sort of stories about someone that, you know, is a titan of the Renaissance, um... Yeah, it really does. It really does humanize them in in quite a sort of endearing way. Yeah, exactly. He he. You're right in saying that his self awareness and his awareness of his place in his times is extraordinary. His greatest strength, yet in a, in a funny way, also perhaps <laughs> reflective of his greatest weakness at the same time. And you know, very very endearing. I'm not saying that everyone should aspire to be like Machiavelli in his private life. Let's be, let's be clear about that, because he was an absolute rotter. He was a fiend. Not a fiend in the way that we think of, but he was, a, he was um, uh, as Alan Clark's wife said, he was an SH1T. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he was. I'm not saying he's a, he's a model, but he's certainly more endearing, more, more human, more fallible. Um, I think one of the reasons that I I enjoyed writing this biography more than almost any other book I've written is because I found it much easier to relate to somebody fallible than to somebody who had taken great care to craft their image, blah blah blah. And you know, we've all we've all had setbacks. We've all taken a, a, a blow or two from fortune. Maybe not the same kind, but. It's much easier to empathise with someone of their nature, and that's why I enjoyed writing. And why I hope people enjoy reading the biography. I think that they will do. Alex, I really enjoyed this. Machiavelli, His Life and Times, in brand new paperback edition, uh, will be linked in the show notes below. Is there anything else that you want to plug? Any other places people should go to check out your stuff? Um, uh, there's another uh, book I wrote a little while ago called The Ugly Renaissance, Sex, Disease and Excess in an Age of Beauty, um, which explores some of the... Um, you know, hidden backstories behind the great art of the Renaissance, uh, the seedy uh, underside of, of the, the Renaissance belly, if I can put it that way. So if you like the the, the, the naughtier bits of Machiavelli's life, that's uh, another place that you, you might like to turn. Perfect. I love it. Alex, thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed, Christopher.